It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from University of Maine Sea Grant, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to practice the, to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. I'm Ron Beard, also um, formerly with Maine Sea Grant and uh, substituting for Natalie Sprinkle, who's on sabbatical. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and Coastal Conversations. Maine's early entry into the global economy was ocean-based. Fishermen harvested cod, dried it on the shore, and shipped it back to hungry markets in Europe. Today's marine-based economy is far more diverse, with Maine fisheries and aquacultural products found the world over. What's the future of the marine economy in Maine? What are some of the challenges, and how are investments like those from the Alliance for Maine's Marine Economy making a difference? So glad to have some folks in the studio who can help us with that topic this morning. We have Carrie Kayser, who is the coordinator of the Alliance of Maine's Marine Economy, also with Maine Sea Grant. Welcome to you, Carrie. Great to be here, Ron. Also, Sarah Redmond, uh, founder of Springtide Seaweed in Goolsboro. Thanks well, for being with us. Thank you. And Bill Mook is founder of Mook Sea Farms in Walpole, Maine, down at the Damariscotta River. Glad to have you with us, Bill. It's my pleasure. Well, let's start, um, Carrie, with you and a little bit of background on Maine Sea Grant and how the and Sea Grant got involved in this alliance. Right. So Maine Sea Grant, we have an extension team that works really in the community level. So we build programs and do community development in all kinds of areas from ecosystem health monitoring to uh, ecotourism, aquaculture, fisheries. And then I, in my alliance uh, for Maine's marine economy coordinator role, help with workforce development and giving a boost to our marine economy. And so the uh, this uh, this alliance formed around a citizen-approved bond that went through the legislature in 2015, and it's all about investments in infrastructure, capital equipment, technologies to give that boost that I just mentioned. So we have 17 investments projects that have quite a range in geography, from Saco all the way up to Machias Port. And um, how do you define marine industry? What, what, what does that look like? Is that boat building or is that more fisheries based? Right. So um, the alliance right now is focused mostly on our seafood economy. So as we already mentioned, uh, aquaculture, 
uh, lobster processing. Um, we'll hear a little bit about seaweed from Sarah. So it's quite diverse. Mm. And um, so it's it's legislative money. Is there any federal money as well? Right. So it was seven million dollars of public funds that had to be matched by at least that initially. So it was seven million matched by seven in uh, private and other public funds. But since this started, it's been leveraged collectively by more than 20 million. So it's a good bang for the buck. Seven million of public funds matched by you know, over 20 million plus. Great. And how do you make your determination of projects? What, what are some of the criteria you're using to decide where to make an investment? Right. So the initial um, bond, there was um, a package that went through the University of Maine. So seven of the projects were built into this initial uh, response for a call for proposals. It went out to bid. The University of Maine received that bid initially, but then $2 million was set aside for a competitive capital grants call that was administered by the uh, Maine Technology Institute. So let's let's hear a little bit um, about some of the projects um, that that you funded, and mm-hmm. and start with Sarah. Sarah, a little bit of background on yourself and and Springtide uh, Seaweeds. Hi, I was um, I'm from Maine, and I decided when I was in high school that I would be a seaweed farmer when I grew up, and I just sort <laughs> of married my two loves for plants and gardening and the ocean, and I I feel like I invented it. Um, so I went to school for aquaculture and learned a lot about salmon farming at the time and uh, really didn't know what I was going to do, so I went to work for the National Marine Fishery Service, uh, worked on all kinds of fishing vessels as an observer, and really just didn't know how to get from my dream of being a seaweed farmer to actually living and working in that realm. And um, all sorts of interesting things came together about 10 years ago, and I ended up down a uh, seaweed lab and created the first kelp nursery system and brought it back to Maine and um, was hired by Maine Sea Grant to be a seaweed extension agent and then worked for uh, four or five years just figuring out how to grow seaweeds and um, helping other people get started with farms and just playing around with this new opportunity. And um, after a few years of growing tremendous amounts of seaweed and not being able to bring it to market, it was very clear that we needed to invest in major infrastructure to bring this dream to fruition. So I left Sea Grant to start Springtide Seaweed and uh, really with this goal of being able to bring all these incredible seaweeds that I was growing to to market to people to be able to eat. So um, one of the things I really emphasized in my work was this need for infrastructure in Maine. We have this incredible history of uh, maritime heritage where you see all of our villages and towns um, and really all of our industries were built 100 years ago and we haven't been investing in that infrastructure as much as we should. And so we're at this point now where we have this tremendous history of um, fisheries in Maine and um, what's going to happen in the future as land use changes, as uh, industries change. We have this really crucial uh, moment right now where we need to invest in this infrastructure and build the future for our fisheries. And I think uh, seaweed can be a part of that. So Springtide Seaweed applied for this program and received um, some funding to, to create a main seaweed exchange, which was formed to 
help sort of link together the resources that were available to us in the state and then also build new infrastructure that we'll need. So it pieces together um, facilities and support for for farmer training, um, for nursery seed production, for uh, farms, and for harvesting and processing and marketing. So really taking this approach that by working together collaboratively, we can sort of grow this bigger industry that's based on uh, shared values and sustainability and really creating the most high quality seaweed that we can produce in the world. Mm. And when you use the word infrastructure, you're not necessarily thinking about um, what might be referred to as bricks and mortar. You're talking about networking, people kind of connecting to each other. Yeah, we need all of it. We need the expertise infrastructure. We need the actual physical infrastructure, the working waterfront infrastructure. Um, Right now, we're really focused on the processing infrastructure. Uh, But we we need all of it. And it's... um, tremendous opportunity and one that um, we really have a unique uh, opportunity in Maine to create something different. And so the vision that we're working with the Maine Seaweed Exchange is to sort of create this network of independent producers and processors um, that work together to create and act as a bigger industry. So um, you, you said you, you dreamed of being a seaweed farmer. Where did that dream come from, and what, what is the actual week-to-week kind of process of growing seaweed? I spent a lot of time in the garden on the homestead and when I grew up, um, so I knew that I liked growing plants, and there was always something about the ocean that really called me. So I just sort of put these two together, and I just had this vision hmm. of of gardening on the sea, working from a boat and working with the plants in the water. And, um, I, you know, work, I worked on all types of different fishing vessels and whale watching boats and lobster boats. Um, but it was never what I dreamed of. And now I have a 20 acre farm in Frenchman's Bay and I'm, I'm out there. You, you go out in the boat, you turn the motor off and then you just work, uh, intimately with your with these plants and this this farm, and then you're actually cultivating. You're working with the uh, the elements, and it's really more everything and more of what I what I dreamed of. <laughs> and um, so you grow um, seedlings, basically, mm-hmm. just like a farmer might in a protected environment, and then you put them out into the ocean. Yeah, the process is really interesting for Maine because we don't have a lot of winter activities. Um, so it's actually a interesting winter crop. And so you can put your seeds out in the fall, and then they grow naturally on the farm through the winter, and then you harvest in the spring. So it takes advantage of, of this sort of off-season for us. And really the fact that you can put a crop in and then have it out in 8 to 10 months it's just it's a one season crop so um, it's a little bit different than something like fish or shellfish which takes several several years Um, we can produce tremendous amounts of of this valuable seaweed biomass every every winter and how might as a consumer I how might I encounter some of your products what would I be eating well um we sell mainly dried products, and um, the the value of seaweed is really its nutrient density. 
It provides a tremendous um, array of vitamins and minerals and other unique compounds that we aren't getting in our normal diet. And so to utilize it, it's really um, important as an ingredient or spice or seasoning. And it's recommended that everybody in the world eats seaweed every day. And so we're trying to create a product that's easy to incorporate, whether it's on your table and you um, shake it into your food or you're a food producer and you want to add it to your um, snack food or processed food to add um, an element of, of more health and nutrients in your in your system. Mm. Well, maybe we'll get some calls later about how, how they might use, people might use it in their own recipes yeah. and on, on their table. Um, let's, let's turn to, to Bill Mook. Uh, Bill, you kind of represent the, the early stages of aquaculture in Maine, um, not because of your age necessarily, but because you were part of that early wave of folks who were thinking about um, uh, growing things um, in the natural environment um, that people would then buy. Uh, tell us kind of your story. How did you get started and, and, and the Damaris got a river as a base? So, so first, I just have to say I'm not insulted by the reference <laughs> to my age. <clears throat> However, um, so yes, I own a, a, an oyster farm on the Damaris got a river. Uh, we started that in 1985, so we were among the very first uh, shellfish farms in Maine. Um, there, it's, there are a lot of uh, similarities between what we do and what Sarah just described in that we have a hatchery where we produce the seedlings that then get put out in the spring and, we, and they grow through the growing season. The difference is that, um, in fact, it's sort of interesting that when I first started, it would take usually through this, after the second winter, we could count on being able to harvest our, uh, our market-sized oysters. Mm-hmm. Um, over time through... Um, improved technology for growing the oysters through selective breeding and um, better nutrition, better uh, technology in the hatchery to be able to grow bigger seed. Uh, We're now at a point where um, we can count on harvesting that crop after just one winter. So really the sort of the second growing season uh, during that time, we begin harvesting those usually uh, sometime in late June or early July. so as uh, over this long years, and uh, I guess, again, another uh, uh, reference to my age is that I've been doing this long enough. So uh, I've, I've been able to view things on maybe almost a geologic time scale. <laughs> and, um, and, and I've seen and I'm observing a lot of really pretty profound changes in the marine environment. And that kind of leads me to um, where, you know, how our involvement with the Alliance for uh, Maine's Marine Economy and the bond we uh, realized a number of years ago that we needed to uh, start thinking about our long-term resiliency and how we are going to cope and adapt to, to these changes. And so the facility that we use bond money to help us with is really aimed at, uh, at addressing some of those problems. Um, so, and I'll sort of jump right in and, and describe what it is we mm-hmm. built. Uh, it's a, about a 9,000 square foot uh, building that's on land. Uh, it, it contains um, the, uh, a holding capacity, holding and improvement capacity. It's a land-based aquaculture facility that can hold 500,000 market oysters. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty big. It's like 100,000, more than 100,000 gallons of, of tanks that we use in a recirculating mode. Um, 
we expanded our packing and shipping area because as a company we've grown and we need and we were just outgrowing the existing facility that we had and in doing so we were able to improve efficiency so we'd never had a loading dock before so we <laughs> trucks now can back up and we can load them on and we, we, we try to avoid doing things the Fred Flintstone way uh, now going <laughs> forward um, and it's also offered an opportunity to become a bit of a hub where other growers in our region can bring product and get it on a truck and, and get it to market as well um, and then a really big thing that we did was um, we had done a lot of R&D beginning around 2004 uh, to figure out a more efficient way of growing the, the food that we feed all of the shellfish when they're on land, um, which is their single-celled plants. We call them microalgae or phytoplankton. And we developed uh, a technique that uses um, fermentation technology. So instead of using light to grow the plants, we're, we're actually giving them the sugar that they mm -hmm. use the light to make first. So it's a very efficient process and allows us to grow uh, enormous amounts of biomass in a very small area. So, um, so now we've built that and we um, used uh, uh, bond funds that we were awarded to build a lot of the facility, but a lot of it also went into, um, w once we figured out how to grow all this microalgae, we had to figure out a, a good way to harvest it. So, uh, and to concentrate it and to put it into a form that we can um, send places. And it, so the idea was to diversify our uh, revenue stream by having a new product. So, so now we are, as of this coming year, we plan to be actually selling uh, this microalgae, in addition to using it ourselves, but selling it to other shellfish operations that they can, um, so they don't have to grow as much themselves. Um, in the course of doing this, we've created um, over four jobs in the last year or so. Uh, we've expanded uh, about four jobs into sort of a middle-level management area, and these are good-paying jobs with benefits. Um, we've been able to create create this new product, this microalgae paste that we're going to be selling. Uh, we are growing larger oyster seed, so it's sort of a new product, and um, we're able to do that both through the added capacity for food production and the space to be able to hold and grow oysters on land. Um, and we are uh, able to provide these freight services that we've started to, to do. Um, and, and we, of course, we, we charge people when we put their product on the truck. So that's another revenue stream. And uh, we opened, uh, and we're also selling other people's oysters under different brands. But then finally, um, we've opened a retail shop. So there's a whole bunch of things that this facility made possible, and the bond money uh, made us able to do this mm -hmm. a lot more easily. What was, what was the... Uh what was the Damariscotta River like when you started? What, was, what, what attracted you to there? Why was there such a hub there? So th that's a really interesting story because, uh, as many people know, uh, the, the oysters in the Damariscotta River um, you know, go back, way back. A couple thousand years ago, the Native Americans um, harvested huge quantities of oysters, and some of the biggest shell middens in the world are located north of the Damariscotta-Newcastle Bridge. Um, Fast forward to, uh, th and those basically disappeared. My favorite theory is that the waters uh, got too cold 
and they were no longer able to reproduce. And the reason I believe that is because as the seawater temperatures in the river and the Gulf have warmed, we're now seeing spawning. And in fact, there's a wild fishery that has literally been spawned by the uh, aquaculture fishery. Um, but I would say that when I started in 1985 and we were out on the water, it was not very developed. Um, it, it was just you know, so it, it still is, but it was really beautiful, and there were just a couple farms. And now in the Damariscot River, there are nine farms employing probably 80 to 100 people and, uh, you know, pumping millions of dollars into the local economy. It's, it's pretty exciting. And I have to say, most of the people in the industry are a lot younger than I am. <laughs> And we should give credit to the Darling Marine Center. And, and, and that is, <laughs> yes, I meant to do that. I'm okay, sorry. Okay, that's all right. So, in fact, I think um, the Darling Marine Center is the reason why all these early farms started there, because most of us were graduate students there. We, we, the, the oceanography of the Damariscotter River was really, really well known, so we knew that the sites were good and that we would have great oyster growth. So, mm. yeah, it was mm. absolute. And, and, all the, and the hatchery technology was transferred basically from the National Marine Fisheries Service in Milford, Connecticut, through Dr. Herb Haidu, to mm. the people like me who then started hatcheries. Mm. It's a great story, and, and it seems to me that um, if we go back to the, the pre-colonial times, it was capturing um, fish, the wild fish, and it took how many, 200 years before we started growing yeah. things, um, and that's probably you know similar to the land-based uh, process. Agriculture started as hunter-gatherer and eventually got to um, pr- you know, some kind of hub- husbandry to, to create things. There's definitely a parallel there. Right, right. Well, let's um, go uh, further down east um, and talk with Diane Tilton. Diane is the executive director of the Down East Institute for Applied Marine Research and Education in Beals. Welcome to, t- to uh, Coastal Conversations, Diane. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Diane, you've had a, um, a wonderful career, um, uh, starting as a nonprofit leader, going into the legislature, and now you find yourself at the Down East Institute. Tell us about um, your, your, a little bit more about your background and, and what the Down East Institute is. Um, well, the, so my background was um, I, that I had run the Sunrise County Economic Council for 13 and a half years. Uh, they're based in Machias, and we were just this crazy, scrappy little group of local people who who thought that we could uh, determine for ourselves what would help our economy improve and, and um, try to come at it from that angle rather than, you know, just implement programs that came from the state and federal government. Um, and while I was there, I met Dr. Brian Beal, and our organization was a big fan of uh, trying to capitalize on the natural resources that we had and uh, try to sustain our natural resource-based industries because they were, you know, one of the competitive advantages that we had as a region. And I uh, was involved in, uh, well, I guess a strategizing session that happened when uh, the University of Maine at Machias decided to um, suspend the their involvement in this little clam hatchery that had been operating that they had been operating on Beals Island to try and help bring uh, clam flats back to be more productive uh, so we were very interested in their work for obvious reasons and then when uh, UMM decided to spin this off somehow I was involved with many other people in you know what that would look like and so ultimately um, that group decided to form a nonprofit organization that would 
sort of own and operate the hatchery for the University of Maine at Machias, and that was how we started life in 1995, uh, after uh, almost 10 years of the hatchery operating through UMM. Um, so anyway, that, uh, that like, we just stayed in our little place on Perio Point until um, 2003. We moved into, a, I, I'm saying we, but I mean DEI, moved into the facility that we have now, which was large enough that we could grow something besides soft-shell clams. So... Uh, we spawn lots of different kinds of, of shellfish, and um, that's our jam. That's what we do. <laughs> and how, and how, has yeah, the, how has the, the Alliance um, uh, for Maine's Marine Economy assisted in your growth and development at DEI? Okay, so um, we, we moved into this facility uh, in 2003, which was much larger, and it helped us grow a lot more varieties and species of shellfish. And so now we're growing, at this point in time, we're growing shellfish for, uh, to support research, uh, for aquaculture development, for community stock enhancement. And we thought we had moved into this huge place, and, we, and then soon we were operating at maximum capacity. And, and so what was happening was that we didn't really have any room for anything else. So if some researcher wanted to come and... You know, they needed the, the environment that we have in the, in the far down east coast uh, to do research, or if there was a, a grower who wanted to try out, you know, growing urchins or, you know, something like that. We just didn't have any, we didn't have any place to put them. Uh, sometimes they would come in and we'd squeeze them into the classroom or in a corner of the hatchery, and, but it just wasn't ideal. And so we had it envisioned having a full-on laboratory and education center back, you know, in, the, in 2000, I think it was. But we were nowhere near making that a reality until um, 2014. And um, that the money from the alliance and some other uh, fund, funding that we were fortunate to get um, enabled us to raise the money that we needed to build out the rest of what we envisioned. So now, if, if a scientist or a business person wants to come here to do some experimenting, we have a business incubator and we have wet labs and dry labs and equipment and offices and housing for students and others. And, and so the, the, the Alliance money really helped transform um, this kind of underutilized and underfunded uh, shellfish hatchery to become uh, something much more and much more of value to the to the region and the state. And you you folks um, employ a, um, a number of folks um, as technicians and and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the growers, the staff. Tell us, yeah. Talk about that. Well, um, I think we have a, well, I have 14 employees now. Um, the, the employees that were here when I arrived, um, so you mentioned that I was in the legislature and then when I got out of the legislature I came back on uh, DEI's board. I was a founding board member, had served for 10 years, and so it was just kind of natural for me to want to get involved again. And then they offered me the position of executive director, which they hadn't had for many, many years. And so when I, when I came here, all of, there were three other employees, and they were all University of Maine Machias graduates. Um, they came to DEI as interns, and we wouldn't let them leave. Um, then, uh, you know, we needed to hire expertise in, uh, you know, the pumps and pipes and keeping everything running and, 
and we had an education center director, and we and now we have two people in there that that run our K to 12 um, marine science education program, um, and we so now we have uh, I think there are four aquaculture technicians that are actively growing animals right now and and then other staff is program and and uh, support while we have you on the line do you see any challenges and and opportunities um in the next you know four or five years what what's what what will you be doing in, in four or five years um to take advantage of of the investment of of the the alliance and and some of the other trends well um we are uh recruiting senior scientists. We did hire a postdoc uh, with a specialty in ocean acidification, and uh, we're hoping to, to try and do some research around the effects of ocean acidification on shellfish. Um, we would like to hire two or three more scientists. We've got um, a project that I'm hoping to get funded with a local business person who wants to use that business incubator uh, on some hatchery technology stuff, and um, I think that um, I, I want to have the Center for Shellfish Production and Research, which is our official name for the hatchery, uh, I would like to have that um, really serving the aquaculture industry more than we do now. And I think that uh, just depending on how our research goes, we're, we're always going to have this capacity, and I'm going to use it. <laughs> so, Yeah. Well, Diane, thanks so much for being with us here on Coastal Conversations this morning, and good luck with all of your efforts. Well, thanks so much. Okay. That's Diane Tilton, um, the Executive Director of the Down East Institute for Applied Marine Research and Education in Beals. Um, there's a theme here that uh, at least I detect, and that's the connection between um, the university and, and the research um, base um, through the land-grant system and going out into the community. That's been our, the stories here, and I think we'll hear more about that from our, our next guest, uh, Kurt Brown. But, uh, uh, Carrie, would you talk a little bit about, what, do you see that same connection? Oh, absolutely. So it's worth mentioning, beyond these 17 projects, the Alliance offers entrepreneurs, innovators, business people from across Maine an opportunity to come together to learn about these innovations, but also to, um, well, with the idea of a rising tide lifts all boats. I think John Kennedy coined that. And so part of these investments is sharing your lessons learned, you know, good or bad, so other can, others can benefit. So it's really sort of this holistic bringing these subsectors together to, you know, get all these bright minds and, and thinking and sharing. In so how, how do you do way. that? How do you make that well, happen? Well, we do that. We bring people together through our fall forum. But what's really exciting to me is these industry field days. So we're opening the doors of these businesses and experiencing firsthand what these investments have enabled, but also learning from each other. And it's really exciting. I mean, the sparks are flying when mm. you get these bright minds together. Mm. Well, you're tuned to Coastal Conversations. I'm your guest host, uh, Ron Beard, and uh, we're talking with Carrie Kayser, the coordinator of the Alliance for Maine's Marine Economy. In the studio with us also is Sarah Redmond, the founder of Springtide Seaweed in Goolsboro, and Bill Mook founder of Mook Sea Farms in Walpole. Um, next, we're going to talk with Kurt Brown. Kurt is on the phone with us from the Portland area. He's a marine biologist with Ready Seafoods. Uh, welcome to talk. Uh, I'm using my old town. Welcome to Coastal Conversations uh, to Kurt. 
Well, thank you very much for having me. This is a great group this morning, and uh, we're humbled to be a part of it. Tell us a little bit about your own background. I understand um, you also started in the in the kind of the research um, uh, sector and have moved to the, the kind of the private sector. Yes, that's correct. Well, I actually grew up uh, right down in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, and started lobstering uh, when I was about eight years old, along with my cousins um, John and Brendan who are the owners of Ready Seafood now. Um, as we were growing up and trying to catch more and more lobsters with more traps and bigger boats, uh, John and Brendan were always more interested in where the lobsters were going. After they were caught, I was always more interested in where they were coming from and what was going on under the ocean surface. So after we graduated from college, John and Brendan started Ready Seafood right around 2004. And I started an internship and then a graduate program at the University of Maine, and I heard Bill speaking about UMaine's Marine Lab, the Darling Marine Center, earlier, and uh, it's just an amazing spot with some of the most innovative uh, research, um, both on the commercial and just natural aspects of the Gulf of Maine going on there. I can't speak highly enough about the opportunities I was afforded while a student there, and just a really, really special spot. Uh, but about five years ago, I had been working at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, and John and Brendan and I started a conversation about starting a research program focused solely on lobster at Ready Seafood, and uh, it was kind of a first for our industry. Um, you look at beef or dairy or poultry and the amount of research and development that goes into those is mind-boggling but when it comes to our fisheries and lobstering especially um, it's kind of next to nothing so we saw a big opportunity there and we focused a research program around two main priorities sustainability on the one hand and quality on the other and right around when we started we uh, in collaboration with the University of Maine, got a research project funded through Maine Sea Grant looking at the distribution and abundance of one-month-old lobsters that have just recently settled down to the bottom of the ocean. And this is a great project that shed a lot of light on how settlement varies by depth and by region. And then after two years, Sea Grant funding ran out. But we had seen such positive results from the study that we didn't want to see the project end. So Ready Seafood uh, came on board and said, we'll step up and continue funding for this project. And it was the first example of a private company funding public research. Um, and it's just been a lot of fun to be able to uh, improve our understanding of our resource. Uh, so that's what we're working on on the, the sustainability side of things. We're doing a lot of work on the quality side as well, and that's really where uh, we tie into the alliance. Um, we put in a proposal to that uh, program, gosh, back in 2017, I believe, and our goal was kind of to add more value to our lobster products. I mean, as recently as 2012, over 60% of the lobsters landed in Maine were getting trucked up to Canada and processed there having that value added there and then sold back into the U.S. market. And we saw a big opportunity to innovate and add new products to the marketplace. So our goal with that proposal was to um, obtain infrastructure funds for a new high-pressure processing machine, uh, which from our perspective was a really interesting piece of equipment that could do two things for us. Uh, on the one hand, we could take our fresh-picked 
packaged lobster meat, put it in one of these machines, which, I mean, you can crank these up to insane pressures, much as 87,000 PSI, which is pretty mind-boggling. And uh, that pressure kills all those bugs associated with breaking food down. It kills your listeria, your salmonella, so the shelf life of your fresh-picked lobster meat, which is our highest-value item, goes from... 13 days out to almost 30 days, which opens up the entire domestic market and beyond. When you're in a supermarket, you're surrounded by packaged products that have been, uh, that have utilized high pressure processing. It's all natural. It doesn't use heat. It doesn't use chemicals. So it's used extensively throughout the food industry for shelf life extension. However, with crustaceans, it has the added benefit of being able to separate the meat from the shell. So you can put live lobster in these machines, and don't worry, PETA agrees that it's a humane way to um, to kill a lobster. And on the other end, those lobsters come out looking exactly the same, but the pressure has separated the meat from the shell, so we are now able to generate uh, raw lobster meat. So our Alliance Award helped us... Um, purchase one of these pieces of equipment and it is the uh, kind of the cornerstone of our new processing facility that we have down here in Saco. Our Alliance Award also helped us secure funding through the main uh, technology institutes, um, the, the MTAF program that they have, and we were able to secure more uh, infrastructure funding for our plant itself down here in Saco. So it's been really uh great for us to be able to work with the state through the alliance through mti through decd and uh, establish these new partnerships to really try and improve the overall value of our resource like i said we grew up lobstering uh, ready seafood is now one of the larger wholesalers of lobster in the entire world but we're really grounded in our industry and we look forward to big things for maine lobster in the future Kurt, thanks so much. Um, just a little bit more profile on on Ready Seafood um, as a as a business. Um, uh, how many people are employed? Um, you said it's a worldwide uh, distribution. Tell us a little bit more uh, detail about that. Yep, that's a great question. So, Ready Seafood has grown from pretty humble beginnings in 2004 when it was a big deal for us to find a a reefer truck that ran and get lobsters down to Boston. To now, we ship between, I would say, 20 and 25 million pounds of uh, lobster annually between our live and processed divisions. Uh, our live distribution center is right off of Commercial Street in Portland. Our processing facility that we just had the grand opening on uh, is a little further south in Saco, and we employ between 150 and 200 people between our two entities. Our Alliance Award and our MTAF Award have enabled us to turn a lot of these jobs from seasonal employment. I mean, historically, the lobster industry has been very seasonal here in Maine, but what we have found through pounding the pavement around the world is while our fishery may be seasonal, and that is changing as well, our markets are not, so we have to find ways to secure product 12 months a year to meet the demands of our customers. So a lot of these jobs that have been historically seasonal with our new plant and with the expansion of our live facility, we've been able to turn them into uh, year-round positions. 
Uh, our distribution on the live side of things is split pretty evenly between the domestic market and uh, the international market. Uh, our processed products, the majority of those are sold domestically, and it's been a lot of fun exploring new markets for new lobster products. One thing, I mean, from a science perspective, it's been eye-opening for me to travel around and meet customers and speak to what we're doing on the sustainability side of things and see how that resonates with customers around the country and also to see their rep. Um, their reaction to this new uh, raw lobster product. I mean, you think about most protein sources, you buy them at the store raw and cook them up any way you like. With lobster, you've always been either buying the lobster live or receiving cooked uh, lobster meat. So it's been a chef's dream or a chef at heart's dream to be able to take home a raw product and grill it or sous vide it or saute it or marinate it or do any number of different things, basically do whatever you want with it, and it opens up all kinds of culinary opportunities. So when we can get in front of chefs and really present this, they get it right off the bat, and they get really excited about it. Kurt, thanks so much for taking time to be with us here on Coastal Conversations this morning. Thank you very much. That's Kurt Brown, a marine biologist with Ready Seafood in Portland and Saco. Um, you're tuned to Coastal Conversations, and we'd love to have your opinions or your questions um, as we talk about how we advance Maine's marine economy. Uh, give us a call at 469-0500 uh, to participate in this morning's uh, conversation. Still in the studio with us, I'm glad to have Carrie Kayser from Maine Sea Grant. She's the coordinator of the Alliance for Maine's Marine Economy. Sarah Redmond, founder of Springtide Seafood, and Bill Mook, founder of Mook Sea Farms. So what are some of the um, things going forward? We've, we've talked a lot about um, we can grow the products. We can grow them sustainably. It's a lot about getting things to market. Um, what, what, what are some of the thing, ways that you're getting seaweed to market? And, and you're part of a, um, a kind of a seaweed culture in, in the Frenchman's Bay Area. Um, you came into that, but there were already seafood operations there, sea, uh, seaweed operations there. Yeah, well, seaweed has um, an interesting, well, like, like pretty much all seafood, it's highly perishable. So processing is really the the biggest challenge for looking at um, how to grow this industry. We we know that we can grow a lot of seaweed in Maine waters, um, but how do we pull it out and process it? And traditionally, we, um, we've always dried seaweed. And this is uh, a method that is simple, and it results in a very nutrient-dense, easy-to-utilize product. Um, and so that is the form that um, the Maine Seaweed Exchange is really focusing on. And we're looking at um, building really high standards, so um, getting organically certified and sort of creating the highest standards that we can for the farmers and the processors so that we can sort of aggregate and then sell to a wider market. So this is based on we have a wild harvest industry in Maine, and um, they've been tremendous help in um, really sharing their experiences. And as we as we look to the future, we're looking at um, there's a rising demand in the marketplace for these seaweed products, uh, especially for organically certified, sustainable um, sources of these products. So mar- Maine farmed organic seaweed could really 
take advantage of those opportunities, but we um, are looking at how to solve this processing infrastructure problem. And um, sort of the way that I'm looking at it is um, to create a model that's really community-based and collaborative. So instead of this traditional model that you often see in, in food systems where you have one big buyer, one big processor that sort of comes in and sets the price, and then as the producer, you're sort of at the mercy of of that process, we would love to um, break the mold and, and um, create our own processing infrastructure in our own backyards. And so the Maine Seaweed Exchange has just created a program called the Organic Help Collaborative, where we're looking for people in Maine that might have greenhouses or backyards and some extra time in the spring, and they, and they might be interested in um, getting a, a seaweed drying house going. And then we're going to create a partnership of organic farmers that are trained and really understand the, the whole system and process, and then also um, seaweed dryers so that we can start to distribute this opportunity throughout our um, coastal communities where we need it the most. So Maine is traditionally dependent on seasonal um, diversified opportunities, and I think that this could really be um, another one of those as we lose some of our other traditional means of, of um, diversification. What's, what's um, a, sea, would a seaweed dryer look like? What, 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 what is actually happening in the dryer? Well, really, it's just very simple. Um, we look at mostly greenhouses, so use solar gain to help dry your your product, but it can also be in uh, converted garages or sheds or buildings built for the purpose. You need some source of, of heat and a lot of fans and um, a system that's set up to be organically certified and um, be a place you can um, handle and process food. So we, the Maine Seaweed Exchange can help people set those places up and get them certified and then become part of this network of, of distributed processors. Mm. Bill, what are some of the, the challenges and opportunities you see in getting your products and the products of other um, oyster and, and uh, shellfish growers to, to market? Well, I think for oysters, certainly, one of the advantages is that there's a fairly long shelf life. And uh, so we like to have our our products consume within about two weeks, but it, it still is a perishable product. They have to go in refrigerated trucks. And um, as the, the shellfish industry has grown, aquaculture industry has grown, there's more um, need to be able to get our products into Boston. Um, our main shellfish enjoys an incredible reputation throughout the country and it's sought after. And there's a lot of opportunity for expanding um, our share of that uh, half-shell oyster market, for example. And so as these new young farmers are bringing their product onto line, uh, we see as an older operation that has developed some of this infrastructure um, where we can benefit from them and they can benefit from us by trying to fill our trucks, both going down to Boston and coming back. And, and the idea is that, you know, we need to get our products down there Usually, we have a truck now that goes down uh, three times a week, and we try to put other people's shellfish on there. Uh, we've hauled some tofu. <laughs> we, we uh, I think there's some other no odd, seaweed odd yet. Things. No seaweed yet. But, no, uh, we'll work but on we've that. had some inquiries. Yeah. Um, and and so you know, this is a way for us to. Um, it, it, it's an opportunity for us to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere from these diesel trucks. 
but it also saves us money. It, mm-hmm. cu- it cuts down our shipping costs because the the fees that we charge, we try to you know charge reasonable amounts per pound that goes down there. But all of that helps us offset the cost of owning and maintaining these trucks. Mm. Uh, we're, we're, uh, you're tuned to Coastal Conversations. You can participate as well by calling 469-0500. Uh, Carrie, it strikes me that as that as we hear these stories, Maine has been known as a food basket, of a place that produces much more food than we as Mainers can consume. We need to get the food out to the broader market. Um, is that really part of the, the future of uh, Maine's marine economy, is, is getting our product out into the world? Oh, yeah, most definitely. But it's, you know, it's making the most of what we have, creating these value-added products that we've heard of, trying new things. And then again, this with this theme of working collaboratively. Mm. You know, we've been talking about within this alliance network, how can we come together and create like a clearinghouse, so to speak, a, a hub to not only go greener in our transportation, but to, you know, not send a half-empty truck down to Boston. And then when it's on its way back, what can we carry up? So we're thinking about um, integrating, you know, new technologies and just working together, um, again, to make the most of what we have. Mm. So um, if you all kind of step back, what are some of the other challenges? Um, aquaculture has um, um, done some remarkable things, but still in the eyes of some consumers as a bad rap. How do we how do we handle that that situation? How do we get good information about um, the processes that you are using out so that the consumer uh, gets it? You've mentioned organic certification as as one way. I assu- I assume that if a consumer says or sees something that says this is an organic product, they have some trust in the product. Yeah, well, the organic standard is a way to sort of <clears throat> create um, accountability throughout the whole process. So in terms of seaweed farming, they look at where your farm is located, um, and then they look at every aspect of where your seed comes from, where your farm is, um, how you harvest and transport and process and package that. So it it adds a level of um, accountability and certification to, to create value and quality in that product. Bill, is there something parallel in, in growing oysters? Um, well, I think that, uh, I I believe that the market for oysters, which has grown steadily, even right through the Great Recession a decade or so ago, um, that's been driven by uh, younger people who have um, come into the the group of people who like to eat raw oysters. (laughs) And um, and by and large, they like to know where their food is coming from, that it's being grown sustainably. And we have a great story to tell, and we're telling it at every opportunity, which is that when you have an oyster farm in a body of water, it actually improves the water quality. And, and why, why is that the case? Well, because they're filter feeders, so they're clarifying the water. They actually, in order to make their shells, they're removing excess nitrogen from the water. Um, our gear serves as uh, their structures in the water, so they increase the biodiversity. When we're flipping our cages in the, you know, in the late fall, we oftentimes see little baby codfish flipping out of the gear because they're seeking refuge there. Um, but, but basically, uh, it's, a, it's a great story. And, uh, you know, we, we are trying to tell that to everybody, and, and people, it does resonate with people. We, we are facing a huge food shortage um, if we don't adopt some innovative ways to grow food. And, and the technology that we're using 
is applicable to that. It, it really does, it, it will be part of the mix of how we grow protein going mm-hmm. down the road. And both of the, the uh, oyster and the seaweed um, industry demands clean water, a clean environment yes. in order to produce what they're producing. I, I did mean to say that because, you know, shellfish farmers are some of the staunchest uh, advocates for clean water. And in fact, uh, in the case of the Damariscotta River, it was a group of oyster farmers that got together over concerns about water quality that created um, the, the some of the first citizen water quality monitoring group. It was with the Damariscotta River Association. Mm-hmm. And that uh, subsequently, with Sea Grant help, grew into a whole bunch of these citizen uh, volunteer groups up and down the main coast. Four six nine zero five zero zero. If you've got your comments or your experience or your questions for our guests, uh, Sarah Redmond, Bill Mook, and Carrie Kayser. Uh, Carrie, what are some of the projects that aren't represented this morning? We've got about uh, seven minutes or so. Yeah. So, um, what, what are some of the projects that haven't been represented in our wonderful conversation this yeah. morning? Yeah. Well, one of my uh, uh, one that's very local to uh, the Damariscotta Peninsula is one down in Bremen. So community shellfish, some of this uh, alliance funding went to revive and refurbish an old lobster pound. And it's working very, very well for growing oysters. It's like a spa for oysters. It has a great (laughs) turbulence. It has the, the right water temperature. And so you have this community of historically lobstermen in that area diversifying and trying new things. And so now they're growing oysters. And a lobster pound is a 19th century um, innovation um, to hold lobsters, and it's being reconverted into something else. Yes, yeah, and it was essentially crumbling into the ground. Okay. We've got a, a time for a short call from Lemoyne. Welcome to uh, Coastal Conversations, David. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, hi. As a boy in the 60s, I lived in Bristol, Pemaquid area, and we used to go to Damascotta, and... They were shell middens all around the area where you guys are raising oysters now on the river, which I find very interesting. Mm. So you, your your um, local knowledge says that people had oysters there for many years before. Yeah, from from the I'd say the Native Americans. Sure. There were there used to be big shell middens there, and they probably still have remnants of them. You know, when you go over the bridge there on the new road, and you look and see all the oysters being raised. In, in that area, I remember as a boy, the mm. people used to go down and dig through them. So it was very cool. Great. Thanks for your call this morning, David. So as we um, round up the hour, um, each of you could talk a little bit about some of your hopes for the future. We've talked about some of the challenges, and each of you have kind of alluded to some of those hopes. Um, but let's start with Bill and talk about what, what do you see as you as you look ahead and these young people coming into the into the business. So I see that uh, as as the coast of Maine faces these really profound ch- uh, environmental changes and challenges. Um, I see aquaculture as being a, a way to kind of preserve our working waterfront, and 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 it, it, it's allowing people who've had a tradition and a family history of working on the water to continue to do that, um, and also have some economic diversity, which I think is always healthy. Mm-hmm. In, in our own business, I, I view what we've created um, at Mooksy Farm to be platform technology that can be used to... Um, help pr- pr- uh, restore wild populations of, of shellfish. Um, 
maybe even lobsters at some point. I mean, the whole reason that the oyster industry has grown the way it has has to do with the the uh, selective breeding of disease-resistant oysters. I think you can selectively breed lobsters, perhaps, that can tolerate warmer temperatures. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in the future, and we shouldn't allow ourselves to get too depressed over the, <laughs> these changes that uh, that we're facing. Sarah Redman, what's, what are your hopes for the future of both the seaweed um, uh, business that you're involved in, but also the, the wider marine economy? I'd like to see our relationship to the ocean change instead of just looking at it as a place to extract a resource. We start to cultivate a relationship with it and looking at what do we understand about the ecosystem, what do we understand about these organisms, and then how can we enhance, how can we create that abundance or allow nature to recreate its own abundance because an ocean is a place of abundance. It should be full of all of these um, different species that support us and that support each other. And um, I think it's just, it, it, it's completely possible to restore the natural systems and um, also figure out how to move into the future through a mix of cultivation and natural restoration and enhancement. And then we can have this sustainable um, marine economy and that will last forever. Great. Carrie, briefly, and your hope? I've heard this theme of this beautiful marriage between science and industry, and love to see that continue. And then also, there's a lot of opportunity for careers in this industry. So excited about attracting new and young people into it. Great. Well, thanks to all of you for being with us. We've come to the end of our coastal conversation today with our guests, Carrie Kayser, coordinator of the Alliance for Maine's marine economy, Sarah Redman, founder of Springtide Seaweed in Goolsboro, and Bill Mook of Mook Sea Farms in Walpole. We were joined also by phone by Diane Tilton of the Downies Institute and Kurt Brown, marine biologist for Ready Seafood in Portland. Thanks to those who listened and called in. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 on the fourth Friday morning of each month. Our theme's music is A Following Sea, composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your guest host for Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Good morning.